Welcome everyone to the seventh episode of season three of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk here in the Northwest. Here's my happy, clappy co-presenter, Chris McGuire, who's never happier than when he's sharing some good news. Well, just being with you uh, is is good news for me. So thank you, Michael. I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. Now, as well as the UK, Bahrain, France and Belgium, we've entered the podcast charts in Ireland. More good news. Um, I've got a couple of shout outs. The first is to my dentist, Sanjay, who gave my gnashes a thumbs up last week when I had my first appointment in about a year. That's good news. I think so, you'll agree. So you, you were waiting to have an appointment with Sanjay for how long? Well, um, I probably not had an appointment for a year or so. Um, yeah, that's down to a Tory government, Chris. Just putting it out there, <laughs> okay. right? Okay, okay. So does Sanjay listen to Northern Spoon? Have you converted? Well, him? He, he doesn't listen to it yet, but we found out we had a shared interest in politics. So I said to this podcast, and I said, uh, I'll give you a shout out. I'll call it Northern Grin, brought to you by Sanjay, the Chorley dentist. And he said, if I did that, he'd become a regular listener. So would he be a um, would it, would he be an advertiser on Chorley FM back in the day? Uh, coming in your ears, coming not in sure. Local ears, yeah. Not sure, not sure. Very uh, good, very good. So have you got any actual listeners rather than would-be listeners that you'd like to name check? Absolutely. I uh, met up with Katie Gallagher last week. She's a managing director of Manchester Digital, does an amazing job. I hosted a panel discussion at their e-commerce conference. She loves a podcast, a massive fan of Nicola Headlam of Red Flag Alerts, thinks she's great, who appeared on our budget special. Thank you, Katie. Brilliant. Well, I'd like to dedicate this week's podcast to Mahenda Guru, a listener of this podcast who uh, we spoke about this over the weekend with him. Um, he's been through what none of us would ever want to go through in the last uh, three weeks and more to follow. But, you know, he knows and my heart's with you. That's all we need to say. Yeah. What, what are we going to be talking about today, Chris? Well, you mentioned Mahinda. Uh, what's, what's interesting is the number of people who come up to me and say, I listen to the podcast from all different walks of life. And that's, that's when I generally do feel we're making a difference. Now, I'm going to put the proverbial cat among the pigeons today because, in my opinion, when it comes to the leaders, Rishi Sunak is beating Sakir Starmer hands down. Labour may still be ahead in the Tories, or sorry, may still be ahead of the Tories in the polls, and quite rightly so. I think but the technical it, term for that, Chris, is cognitive dissonance. So he's <laughs> beating him hands down but he's behind in the polls carry no, on no 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 is ahead of Sakir Starmer when it comes to the battle of the leaders but when it comes to the battle of the parties Labour ahead of the Tories well, what a that's good job we don't have a presidential voting that's system. the point I'm making oh, okay. uh, Sunak is narrowing the gap in the polls and uh, is winning the hearts and minds of the focus groups you must be seriously worried well you are making the assumption that I'm 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 politically biased in this context, and and I've got some skin in the game. Obviously, I think that this country deserves better leadership than what we've had and what we've currently got. But the good news for regular listeners is that yeah, I do disagree with you on that point because we have. I think we have been actually agreeing too much recently. Yeah, yeah? Uh, and I'm really pleased actually that although you have been bowing to the superiority and logic of my arguments recently. Um, it's good that you're attempting at least to make a token stand up for conservatism, small C, large C or otherwise, or in the case of Boris Johnson, a massive C word. Yeah, Tory. absolutely. Listen, I can't defend Boris Johnson, but uh, no, I am going to defend Rishi Sunak. Um, we are not going to spend too long talking about Boris Johnson's disastrous performance in front of the Privileged Committee. We are going to touch on it a little bit. But in the week that uh, Lee 30P Anderson landed a £100,000 job at GB News to become the fifth Conservative to present a GB News show, there are serious questions about whether this is genuine TV or merely 
propaganda. I can't believe we're even debating it. It is absolute flat-out right-wing propaganda. It doesn't pretend to be anything else. It's in its name, isn't it? Gammon Britain News. Yeah. That is what it stands for, isn't it? Uh, well, listen, I can't wait to discuss that with you later on. Anyway, we've got our usual thank you, starting with What Media, who expertly produce our podcasts every week. They're the kings of video content creation, and they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. Yeah, I mean, well done to What Media. What's really nice, actually, is people say, um, when I'm talking to them about Northern Spin, they always ask, who, who who actually puts your podcast together? And I mention the guys at What Media as well, because they come across so well. So thank you very much to them. I'd like to thank our three sponsors, Oscar Technology, Lily Shippen, and Red Flag Alert, who are co-sponsoring this podcast uh, alongside Growth Flag. Now, we'll talk about Growth Flag and Lily Shippen in parts two and three. But when it comes to Oscar, they really share our commitment to integrity. I was looking at their LinkedIn account over the weekend, as is my want. They've got 86,000 followers, which is amazing. Their headcount has gone up 12% in the last six months. But one of the things I love about uh, Oscar is the way they cover each and every member of their staff. Uh, they celebrate their achievements. There's a chap called Travis Englishby, which is a great name, incidentally. Uh, he's just celebrated his second Oscarversary at Oscar, while Daniel wilson McGee, Romney uh, Orby, and Kiara Ingold have just joined Oscar's London office. If I have completely destroyed their names with my pronunciations, I do apologise. The story that I loved over the weekend was uh, they've got a member of staff called Olivia Betterson who's moved to Oscar's San Diego office. She's got a one-way ticket to San Diego. That sounds great. And she posted about her dream move to link, uh, to, uh, on LinkedIn to San Diego. So we're delighted to have Oscar on board. Fantastic, Chris. That's great news. The best companies do indeed always put their staff first. So tell me then, Mr. Maguire, as the consumer Conservative with the lowercase c amongst us. We can't delay this moment any longer. Why do you think Rishi Sunak is, in your words, beating Keir Starmer hands down, despite being behind in the opinion polls? You can't even you can't even read it out. You can't even say it. You know because that's that is uh, you know your Labourish tendencies are coming to the fore again. Okay, listen for the avoidance no, of no, any doubt. Journalistic tendencies. For the avoidance for accuracy. See, Chris. you interrupted me already. You see, for the avoidance of any doubt. Labour are still ahead of the Tories in the polls. I'm not disputing that. Right. One poll put Labour 21%, uh, 21% uh, ahead of the Tories. But the battle between their respective leaders is a lot closer. And that's the point. Polls are notoriously unreliable. But there's one last week, a company called Delta Poll, which has given the Tories fresh grounds for optimism. Now, I mean, it won't come as a surprise to you that the Daily Mail climbed all over this poll, but so did some of the other press as well. Key findings, the Conservatives are up eight points to 35 points, which puts them 10 points behind Labour, who have dropped five points in the past week. Sunak's personal approval rating which is really the point I want to talk about, has improved from minus 11 to minus 9, still minus, while Starmer's has fallen from plus 12 to 7. Uh, now, Starmer's still ahead, but Sunak is now in the gap, albeit he's got a long way to go. Now, my view of Sunak is this. I think he did a decent month. The Windsor Framework, his horrible name, uh, was backed by the House of Commons last week by 515 votes to 29. There are only 22 uh, Conservative rebels. So we can now genuinely say Brexit is done, contrary to what Boris Johnson claimed. Jeremy Hunt's budget was announced without too much controversy, which can only be a good sign. Um, the months of industrial action look like they're coming to an end. The government 
that handled the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank well. You said so yourself in the podcast last week. Uh, as well as talking tough on the small boats, and I've still got issues about this, Sunak had a meeting with Edi Rama, the very tall Prime Minister of Albania. There's a picture of him with Rishi Sunak outside 10 Downing Street. Yes, that was quite comical, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. I think he's about six foot five, and Rishi Sunak's yeah. about five foot six. <laughs> um, I think this is important, not the picture, because um, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the people coming across on the small boats are single Albanian men. Um, so that's somebody who's having a conversation and trying to sort something out behind the scenes. Fraser Nelson wrote a piece, the Daily Telegraph on Saturday headlines, I'm beginning to see how the Tories might win the next general election. But here's the thing, and this is what I think is so important. The ghost of Boris Johnson could be vanquished for good when, and I say when and not if, the Privileged the, um, privilege Committee find him guilty of deliberately lying to the House of Commons. Even diehard Johnson supporters, uh, and they're starting to disappear, say he's a busted flush. Um, that can only be a good thing for Sunak, can only be a good thing for the country. Sunak looks like a solid prime minister, okay. especially when compared to that liar Johnson and the incompetent Liz Truss. I think he's distancing himself from the Johnson fan club, the, the likes of Nadine Doris. Now, should you be worried and should Labour be worried? Well, I think the bounce back by Sunak has been priced in by Labour strategists. Um, at least it should be if it hasn't been, but I'm seeing all the indications that it absolutely has. Starmer's still quite calm and he needs not to panic. So let me explain. You'll have noticed that Starmer has been slowly but steadily building up, ready to govern. Yeah. So all the kind of attributes that I think focus groups will pick up on about him is that he's stern, he's serious, but more importantly, he's strategic. And that's what his national missions that he launched here in Manchester at the co-op a few weeks ago was all about. Sunak, let's not forget, has been at the side of Johnson all that time while he was partying during Partygate, dishing money out, dishing honours out. And he'll claim that he spoke out against Johnson just as he demands that Starmer clarify where he was when Jeremy Corbyn was the Labour leader. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that everybody almost seems to accept now that this country faced the worst choice it ever had in the 2019 general election between, as I called it at the time, the smirk and the scowl. So yeah, Sunak does give off an air of confidence and competence, but, 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 I think he's walking a tightrope. Governments have to fight elections on their record. And the shape-shifting of the Tories, where they keep trying to pretend that they are a new government mopping up the mess of the last idiot, I think it's unsustainable now because they've basically had five goes at this. So what are the things that, are, that could potentially fuel the negative headlines for Rishi Sunak? One, I think there's still the Boris Johnson problem. I think you kind of brushed it away rather too easily, Chris, if I'm honest. People seriously, I think, loathe Boris Johnson, but he's not going away. His credibility shattered. He's still linked to Sunak, whether you like it or not. And although the Tory MPs didn't flock to his defence in this instance last week, I think he's still, you know, I think to quote Peter Mandelson, he's a fighter, not a quitter. Secondly, there's division in the Tory party over Brexit, immigration, tax, the economy. Sunak's doing a reasonably job, good job of dampening that down for now. But um, while he's got the whips helping him to work the Tory backbenches, um, I think he's made small boats one of his priorities, and that won't be solved quickly or easily. And thirdly, and I've said this before, his image. Sunak is wooden. He's not very good at street fighting politics. He's not a political hooligan like Boris Johnson is. And he's almost never seen in public. All his appearances are stage-managed, unspontaneous 
and really, really cringy. So you've made your case for Sunak with your lowercase conservative small C hat on. But what is it? What is it you've got against Starmer? I, you know, all, all the left wing people I talk to hate Starmer because they think he's basically a Tory. Surely he's all the things that you would want. <laughs> he's stable. He's strong. He's making good links with all sorts of different members of civil society, the business community. Uh, he's a unifying leader. What's, he, what's not to like from your point of view? He, he, he's solid. He's just uh, lacks charisma. I think one of the points you make actually about Rishi Sunak is that if the previous two governments were Labour and they were led by Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, you know, everyone would be lapping it up. The problem is he's be- he can't say this. We're better than the last two leaders because they're conservative administrations. Um, well, I four. think. I think that's that's the thing. Sunak comes across as a solid and competent leader because he's following Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. Everybody knows that, but he can't say that because we've had 13 years of conservative government. Um, in terms of um, in terms of uh, um, Starmer, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, it's one of my wants actually. One of my favourites is Red Box Politics with Matt Chorley. Not because he's called Chorley, and I live in the People's Republic of Chorley. That's on Times Radio because they they do a focus group every month. And they, with a focus group, it, it's not massively representative. They pick maybe six to eight um, voters, different uh, different parties, and they get their opinions on stuff that's outside Westminster. So all it is is a little a dip into the uh, public trough of opinion. The Conservatives started in a really, really low place after Johnson and Trust put Sunak. Um, you know, so Sunak always going to come across as a lot better, steadying the ship. Um, comments from the focus group included, and this is about what they said about Rishi Sunak. Well, you're just bigging Rishi no, Sunak no, up no, again. No, I, no, I asked no. you. To, I asked no, you I will, about I will. Starmer. No, I will. I will. But I need to set it into some sort of context as well. Thing is, you want me to come across with a glib answer that can make a no, ten-second. I want you to come bite. up with an honest answer. I will come up with an question. honest answer. You know, this isn't this isn't uh, social media politics. This is us trying to get under the skin of the uh, issue, right? So this is what the focus group. These are my opinions. This is a focus group. They said in terms of the current government in terms of uh, Sunes government it's getting there and better than what they were now hardly a ringing endorsement um, especially given the fact the election's 18 months away but the boat has changed course and it's moving in the right direction it's got a long way to go the comments about Sunak and I will get to your point about Starmer are more interesting they describe him as being quote competent um, level-headed, sensible. One of the comments was slightly out of touch. I think it's fair that we put that comment in there as well. Once again, not a ringing endorsement. Um, but although the polls are broadly negative towards the conservative, uh, uh, you know, towards the conservatives, they they are broadly favourable towards Sunak. Now he published his tax returns last week. The public didn't seem to mind that he's minted. Listen to the comments from this select. Um, this select group for this focus group about your friend Starmer. Okay, he's more of a complainer than a doer. He's the leader of the opposition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have his own ideas about things. He's improved the Labour Party image. That was a positive comment. I don't know much about him. You hear this a lot about Starmer. I don't know much about him. Not much charisma. Not very inspiring. Bit wooden. Don't know if you've seen his performances recently at PMQs. You know, he is wooden. He's not coming across as inspiring. Full of hot air. Now, Keir Starmer was. Stoke on Trent last week and pledged to half violence against women and girls if Labour wins office at the next general election. He doesn't want to give many details. He doesn't. I think I think Labour are so afraid of not winning the next general election. They're not doing enough to win it. Um, and if that makes sense, I don't think the Conservatives. Not only does it make sense, it's a really really good line. I actually what? quite like that. What, what line? The, the t- Labour are so afraid of not winning the next election that they're not doing enough to win it. I think it's a great line. Did you come up with that? Um, 
<laughs> well, I wrote a line. The point, the point, the point is, I want to because if I was on a TV show now and you were asking Why me that question, credit I'd, be, for that? I'd, be, I'd be all over it. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be saying to myself, "Look, look." The thing is with Labour is they are they are trying to win the election based on saying to the Conservatives, "You're going to lose it." So as a consequence, Labour aren't doing enough to win it. That's the point I'm making. Now you can disagree with me, uh, and you almost certainly will disagree with me. But you know, you can't sit here right now and say to me, Starmer is a very interesting leader. I think he's got a fascinating hinterland. I mean, he's from a working class background. I, I can't disagree with what the focus groups are saying, right? That that they, they are facts. They so are, you agree with you agree no, with it? No, no. I'm I'm saying I I agree with you restating the facts that a focus group found him uncharismatic, wooden, and they don't know much about him. That to me is the absolute key fact in there. They don't know much about him because most people don't turn on to politics they don't they don't look at the minutiae of of debates they don't watch pmqs they don't listen to to speeches that keir starmer does at the co-op in manchester launching his five missions to rebuild britain it's a slow burn so when they say they don't know much about him i think he's got it all to he's got it all to do he's, he's reasonably self-made you know he's not been handed handed his life and his privilege on a plate he's worked hard for it he became the director of public prosecutions and you said as well that you thought uh, his performances at PMQs had been bad. Sunak did this ridiculously contrived labour on the side of criminals. And, I, and honestly, I was cringing all the way through it. And at the end of it, Starmer handed him his arse on a plate by just saying he had more experience of, of dealing with criminal cases from his time as director of public prosecutions and prosecuting people as a barrister. And that, only Star, and that Sunak's only experience of it was pleading guilty to the two charges that he's recently faced. I thought that was brilliant, brilliant bit of theatre. It was obvious, but it was um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was obvious. But I think there's two things in particular that uh, are really going to work well in Starmer's favour. Um, we're recording this on Monday morning. The Scottish National Party's election will be announced at lunchtime. I don't think any of the three candidates have set the world on fire. And I think there's been all sorts of division and scandal within the Scottish National Party. And I think that could translate basically into 20 seats for Labour at the next general election. Also, the natural response, Chris, to a lot of the problems in society, division, public service collapse, unfairness, life chances, a lack of leadership and a sense of direction about what the country's about and where it's going post-Brexit. I think all of them require a credible response that needs a strong state being driven from the centre. And I think only a left of centre social democratic party can really embrace that challenge and go with it. I think people will buy into that. As I think Liz Truss found when she thought the response to it needed to be to kind of slash the size of the state and and become a an entrepreneurial-led animal spirit Silicon Valley type economy. That's not going to happen and the public don't swallow it. The biggest danger in the opinion polls that I don't think it is revealed and you haven't mentioned it is that Labour tend to pile up the votes in the safe seats with high numbers of ethnic minorities, young people and graduates. The election will not be won in Manchester, London, and Brighton, but here in the north, in places like, in, pla in places in the north and other places around what we have now come to refer to as the Red Wall, like Stoke, Blythe, Dudley, and of course, Dewsbury. Sunak is already playing down expectations in May's council elections, pointing out that it was at a low point in the Tories' electoral cycle in 2019 when these, last, when these seats were last fought, four years later. So we've all, We've got all out contests locally in six greater Manchester boroughs, of which Bolton, Stockport and Oldham will be of particular interest. 
I can foresee a complete Tory wipeout in Stockport and more gains for independent candidates in all three of those um, boroughs. But Cheshire East, Cheshire West are up for grabs. Lancaster's got all-out elections in um, in Lancashire as well. And I think it's going to be um, a big night for Labour to take overall control of a lot of councils. And I think that will give a real lift to Labour. You can provide more insight on this than me. Okay, so there's this theory in terms of the link between national politics and local elections. Yeah. And obviously... Um, the, the government of the day will always say, we're the government of the day, you know, we'll always get a kick in at the council elections. I think there's this theory that the council election results are probably 8% worse, they think, i.e. in a national election, they're 8% better, but in a local election, they're 8% worse. So, you know, how, how much of national politics, I mean, when Corbyn was in charge yeah. uh, of the Labour Party, they would get a kick in the local elections because he didn't translate very well. How much of a factor do you think national politics will have in local elections in May? I think it'll have quite a big factor. I think I mentioned there um, the Conservatives have at the moment about four seats on Stockport Council. They've been as high as 15 in the past. I th and they've got two Conservative parliamentary constituencies in there. They'll be real bellwethers of what the Lib Dems are calling the yellow wall. So they expect to win Hazel Grove and Cheadle. They expect them to be Lib Dem gains in a general election. We've had a leaflet through our door in the Hazel Grove constituency already. And it doesn't, it hardly mentions who the candidates are in the local elections, but it does mention the parliamentary candidate. And that's what the Liberal Democrats are focusing on. They'll be doing that in a half a dozen other seats around the North. And I think that's gonna be a real squeeze on the Tory vote. I think Tory voters will be fairly, you know, in places like Bramall and Cheadle and, and Hazel Grove wards, I think they'll be reluctant to come out and vote. So the Conservatives could be reduced to nothing. But blue wall Conservatives in places like Tameside and Oldham, because of local issues, um, I think that can make for a very interesting mix as well. So what would be a good result for Rishi Sunak in the local elections? Uh, the Conservatives holding on to um, some councils that they control in the, in the shires, as they call them, mm. um, particularly, or maybe even getting a majority on Cheshire East Council. But I don't, I can't see it happening. I no. think they're going to get a bit of a kick in. Right. Okay. I know you like to spend your most most uh, nights watching GB News, um, and in a second we're going to talk about GB News. But we do need to talk a little bit about Boris Johnson's performance at the Privileges uh, Committee last week. We we uh, we alluded to it in last week's podcast. Do you think there's any way back for Boris Johnson? No, I think he did exactly what we said he'd do on last week's podcast. He lied again and again. He lost his temper. And what was worse is I think that his dreadful cabal around him really abused their access to the media to attack the committee and their credibility. And I think it came across as really Donald Trumpish. Particularly, I, I think, special praise, special... Um, Censure has to be handed out to Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Dorries, who abused their um, positions. They were absolutely disgraceful bringing a parliamentary committee into the contempt that they did. We'll talk about it later in the section on manoeuvres, but I think the Tory right are having a bit of a rethink at the moment, and they haven't gone away. But I think what do is, you think? Well, I think this is what Rishi Sunak's doing, though, is that is that this this Tory right, you know, this cabal around, um, you know, around Boris Johnson, they they are basically a figure of ridicule, and he doesn't need to do anything because I don't think people take him very seriously. When I was a kid, uh, I come from Kent, and uh, we used to go to Margate on a Saturday, and we used to go in the arcades, and you know those shovers, the coin shovers, they're on different cascades. 
stage. Yeah. Um, and never ever won them. No. And then what you They're do, all glued on, aren't they? what you do is you absolutely walk into it with your bottom. And if you've got a big ass like me, you know, you used to get a few two P's and a few 10 P's. The way I, the analogy I would use with Johnson is performance last week at the, uh, at the privileges committee. It was like he'd fallen over and rugby tackled a coin pusher. Um, and it had come out with about 10, two P's and he's left holding the money and people are pointing the finger at him. And he says, it's not my fault. I fell over. He had no defense. He never had a defense. And for three hours, he had to go back to the fact that he spoke to his head of comms and he said, oh, you've not broken any rules. He didn't go to his civil servants. He didn't go to any legal expertise. Dreadful. Um, I think the cheerleaders that he's had before are disappearing. I mean, he claimed that he had over 100 people were willing to back him at the last leaders, uh, the last leaders vote. Now I think it's down to 20 and less. When you get people like, we mentioned him a lot, Scott Benton. Scott, if you're listening, um, this is for you. When he uses comparisons to say he likened the process to OJ Simpson. I mean, Scott Benton didn't become an MP until 2019 and he talks like he's been an MP for 30 years. You mentioned Nadine Doris. I thought her rant talking about bending the rules was outrageous. Deborah Meaden, she tweeted for Lindsay Hoyle and Rishi Sunak to do something about it because she basically he said, you know, she's breaking the rules. It's outrageous. I think what's interesting, people like Steve Baker, the Northern Ireland minister, um, he accused Boris Johnson of looking like a pound shop Nigel Farage by voting against Sunak's Brexit deal. You know, when that sort of terminology is used, there is no way back at all. I think Johnson's a horrendous. Um, and I think he's 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 finished himself. Uh, but you just get this thing with uh, Johnson. He never completely goes away. And that's the only concern. I'd just like to apologise, readers, that normal service, listeners, that normal service will be resumed as soon as possible. And Chris will start disagreeing with me again. <laughs> but for now, he's agreeing with me and bowing to the superiority of my arguments. Thank you. No, 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 no. We're agreeing that Boris Johnson is a cad. That's what we're agreeing. You know, it would be very difficult for me to come out in favour of Boris Johnson. So you, you, you're really diminishing the role of the Tory thick right, as I call them. And yet, and yet, you want to talk about GB News, Gammon Britain News. Yeah. After Lee 30p Anderson became the fifth Tory MP to be given a slot presenting a show on GB News for a reported salary of £100,000 a year in the process. I thought you'd be happy about that. I think the chance to right. listen to more sound bites from the Tory deputy chairman. So I, what? What is it? Are they are they a force in the party? He's, he's one of five deputy chairmen, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And um, yeah, I think I think what's going on? I think the thick right of the party, incidentally, I think they're becoming an irrelevance. That's the point I'm making. Uh, I think in terms of Lee Anderson, right? Lee Anderson. You know, I, you know, do I think he's a great politician? No, but I do think he's an effective communicator. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Esther McVeigh, her husband, Philip Davis, they've all hosted programmes on GB News. Uh, Deanna Davison, who I actually thinks very good, uh, she's presented on the channel before she uh, got a job as a levelling up minister, so she left. It's worth providing a recap in terms of what GB News is. I don't watch GB News. There's no way I'm going to watch that sort of right-wing filth. Um, but I listened to a podcast last week, Matt Ford's podcast, uh, Political Party, with Channel 4's Christian Guramurti, who I think is excellent and he was talking about the other stations stations like gb news they're not proper uh, news channels they don't go out with tv cameras and report on news like bbc and sky news they don't do that what they do is they bring in guests into their expensive studios and they interview them about the news with their opinions right okay so if most of their presenters or a good chunk of their presenters are tory mps it stands to reason when they interview guests quite often tory ministers they're going to be biased. They are not the BBC. Now, Tony Blair's former spin, Dr. Alistair Campbell, who by his own admission, you know, clearly he's got a vested interest as well. He tweeted, why are 
Ofcom doing nothing about a right-wing cultist fan club masquerading as a TV news channel. I mean, his his tweets get like one and a half million impressions or more. Um, he spawned. The reason why Suella Braverman invited GB News on a trip to Rwanda last week and didn't invite the BBC and The Guardian, we spoke about it on the pod, is because she knows she'll get an easy ride off GB News. The point is that GB News is loss-making. It isn't a proper news channel. It's watched by people who just watch it and say, there you go, I'm right. SNP's MP, John Nicholson, uh, has warned, and his words, that this right-wing propaganda is taking over British media. And he's right. The example he gave was talking about the budget where Tory MPs are interviewing Tory ministers about a Tory budget. Now, that can never be impartial. Now, I'm sorry, dear listeners, but I find myself agreeing with Michael Taylor. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't watch Gammon Britain News either. It's of no interest to me. Um, And I know I probably should in the interest of casting my net a little bit wider. But I think what they're trying to do on the right is... That they're seeing the space that's occupied by in TV news as a space where there's sort of free debate. But if they can do what they've done to the print media, which is make it partisan client media, very much for the for the Tories, that they can counter that. My biggest problem with all of this stuff is they say that they'll say things like Channel Four News, Newsnight, BBC News is just dominated by the woke, you know, liberal me metropolitan liberal elite. And one of my biggest problems with all of this is it's this idea that people aren't allowed to say what they think these days, you know, that debate is shut down, that free speech is being quashed. And when I when I actually stop and think about what that looks like, it comes down to an issue that a friend of mine experienced on a train at the weekend traveling from Manchester to Todmorden. She's there with her, with her four-year-old daughter on her knee. She's a, a black woman of Nigerian heritage. And she's listening to people who feel emboldened to be able to say what they want, to be able to talk about lazy nurses and, and, and all sorts of racist filth. And that's what we're talking about. It's that moron who flew a, a banner over Man City's ground when Burnley were playing them with White Lives Matter on it. And who was also photographed in Italy last week for the England game with a hugely offensive flag about Diego Maradona. These people feel emboldened by Lee Anderson, by Suella Braverman coming up with the stuff they do about invaders. And I think it's horrendous. And I think that's where this leads. And I think it comes back again, Chris, to what Gary Lineker said about, we just have to watch the language. And wouldn't it have been better? Wouldn't it have been better if Rishi Sunak, whatever his contribution to that whole debate about Gary Lineker would actually have been to clip Suella Braverman's wings and say, can you just dial it down a little bit? Maybe he is behind the scenes. We don't know. Yeah, we we don't don't know. know. It'd be Um, even better if he did it in public. Yeah, but there's no excuse for, um, you know, that overt uh, racism. It's horrendous. I saw the tweets as well. And you just worry about the impact that has on her kids uh, moving forward. There's no excuse for it. And it's got to be called out. It's got to be called out. And that's why we do call it out when we see it. And I think what this issue with, um, you know, Lee Anderson does prove, and Lee Anderson, of course, said a few months ago, um, why do people need second jobs for? Now he's got a second job paying £100,000 a year. Um, it's it's about MPs who are not doing their main job as an MP. Over the week Weekend. And I think you'll see this a lot on social media because they will hold politicians to account in the same way that certain sections of the media aren't. So there's this campaign group led by
by donkeys, it's called, published an investigation over the weekend about MPs being prepared to work for a fake South Korean firm. So the point they were making is they contacted 20 MPs, most of them conservatives, and they set up a fictitious account, fictitious company, fictitious website. They hired an office in South Korea, and they basically said, we're going to create this international advisory board, and we want MPs on it to advise us. And they tried to have these conversations. Now, most MPs, in their infinite wisdom, didn't engage in five had a conversation um and quasi quartank came across absolutely horrendously the former chancellor former health secretary matt hancock who i think everyone's recognizes has got no personal judgment came across awful as well saying they'll agree to work i mean quasi quartank said well i'm not going to do anything for less than ten thousand and and the uh, the 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 journalist uh, you know said ten thousand dollars or ten thousand pounds and he said ten thousand sterling um so he wants to work one day a month twelve hundred twenty thousand pound a year to work for this South Korean business. Uh, it just smacks of snouts in the trough. I cannot defend the Conservatives for stuff like this. And this is the problem that Rishi Sunak's got, is every time Rishi Sunak, as a personal leader, does something really well, then 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 his party let him down. And I thought that was horrendous, the stuff that I watched. Yeah, I can't believe how terrible this looks for the Tories, frankly. I think Hancock is now a national joke. I just don't believe how he can possibly hang on in public life in any way, shape or form. I think it's confirmed to us. Um, sometimes we call the Tory party the nasty party. They're also the greedy party. Craven, entitled, greedy, and worst of them all, absolutely stupid. I mean, I can't believe you've ever negotiated as badly as they have on that. Do you not, did, you not, did that not scream out for you, both Graham Brady, Kwasi Kwarteng, and, um, and Matt Hancock, the way they negotiated? Well, I thought, and you mentioned Graham Brady, you know, the, uh, the chairman of the 1922 committee, um, Northwest MPs leaving at the uh, next general election as well. I thought what I, th- what I thought was, you know, there's areas of my game that I'm quite strong. There's areas of my game that I'm probably not as strong. Negotiating a fee, probably not my strongest hand. But you can't um, be much worse than this lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, they just you kind know, of went, uh, 10 grand. Yeah. They reminded me of Dr. Evil on the Austin Powers film. There used to be a uh, footballer. One million pounds. Well, there used to be a footballer called Seth Johnson who uh, used to play for Derby County, actually, and he went to Leeds, and it was when Peter Isdale was the chairman. And they went in there with a chip, they went in there with his agent, and uh, Peter Isdale said, Right, how much do you want? And the negotiating tactic was apparently the agent says, I'll just go in with an absolutely ridiculous figure and see what they say. He said, uh, My client wants £40,000 a week. And Peter Isdale said, Yep, okay, you're on. And it was like, really? You know, that's not negotiation. And they probably should have said 60,000. I just thought, um, quasi quieting, and this story is going to run and run. I watched it and it was, uh, well, 10,000 pounds. These are the sort of figures when we're in a cost of living crisis that that stuff really, really sticks in the claw, um, in the core. And I just thought that um, it, it's horrendous. Now, Rishi Suna, what he won't do is he won't distance himself from these people, at least publicly. Well, I don't know. I I was listening to the media round this morning and Rachel Burden on Radio 5 Live on Monday morning did an interview with a a Tory minister. Apologies, I can't remember it. It wasn't wasn't anybody, it certainly wasn't anyone famous. And he he said he felt it was a bit cringy. He he did come out and criticise these three. So I think they're, they're getting ready to hang them out to dry, I think. Yeah, good. Anyway, and on that, we're going to go to our first break. Welcome back to the second part of Northern Spin. Now, I've interviewed loads of CEOs, leaders in my time, 
And the role of a good personal assistant is absolutely pivotal to their performance. When it comes to making those big decisions, they really do use their PA or their EA as a sounding board. Absolutely. Yeah, as uh, I found that myself as well, actually. Lily Shippen, that's where they come in. They're a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff. They've got bases in Manchester and London. Lily Shippen recruit for a wide range of roles, including executive assistants, personal assistants, office managers, receptionists, HR, business partners, and many more. I find them really personable when I speak to them. They don't just know how to recruit HR and business support staff, but they know, and this is crucial, they know when to recruit as well, and they make a real difference. I've spoken to companies with a PA or EA from Lily Shippen, and it's changed their business. So if you're an MD, a CEO, or business leader in the North, remember the name Lily Shippen. So in a minute, we're going to be discussing who's on manoeuvres, but there are a number of regional stories that we need to just have a look at first and see if there's anything to see here. Before we start, I want to mention how Labour MP selections are going. We've had another one recently. Over the weekend, uh, Ben Hartley was was selected as Labour's parliamentary candidate for Altrincham and Sale West. Now, that's a really important seat because we've already mentioned who the sitting incumbent MP is. It's Sir Graham Brady who is the chair of the Conservative 1922 Committee. He's indicated he's stepping down at the next election to take up a £100,000 a year role with a fictitious Korean consultancy firm. But anyway, the point of it is that what's really important is the whole contest seemed to be conducted with great civility and no rancor, which I was quite pleased about. Nobody seems to be complaining it's been a stitch up. And it's one really that Labour think that they can win, that they'll transfer from the blue column to the red column come election day because of the changing demographics. And actually, it looks like Labour have got a pretty good ground game in Altrincham and Sale West as well. Yeah, well, congratulations to uh, Ben Hartley. Um, Now, would you publish your tax returns? No, of course not. No, um, no, absolutely. I mean, we're not in the public eye. Uh, Risha Sunak and Keir Starmer both published their tax returns last week. Sunak is clearly a very, very wealthy man. He did, it, he did it on the day that Johnson, all attention was on Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. Day, yeah, yeah, a good absolutely. day to bury bad news. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think I think even number 10 Downing Street admitted it was done on the sly. Um, and it wasn't his full tax return either. It was a summary of it. Yeah, well, anyway, as mentioned, he is a wealthy man. Um, Starmer pledged to um, scrap tax tax benefits of his own pension. He published his uh, tax returns after being accused of hypocrisy. I think we're going down this US model, aren't we, where our politicians are expected to publish their tax returns. Did you see anything to see here? Uh, A little bit, yeah. I think it's more of a problem for the Tories than it is generally for Labour politicians. But I'm a bit alarmed that you're mentioning the hypocrisy line. I don't think it in any way stands up against Keir Starmer. He, it was a pension that he's, n- he's not drawing down. It was It's not a benefit that he's actually accruing. And it's something that as his role of, as Director of Public Prosecutions, it'll have been a pension scheme that he will have you know, effectively been part of his perks and benefits. It's not something that he's uh, that he's benefited from. And I think it's it's this constant drip drip from your former employer, the Daily Mail, that a successful person who isn't basically a right-wing arsehole <laughs> is some kind of hypocrite. And I think it's really, really tedious. No, I think um, I, there's no issue for me with Rishi Sunak being a wealthy guy. And I think most people... Um, I don't notice that Labour don't attack him for I that d- I don't much. think people... Well, they can't really. I don't think people mind that you've got a multi-millionaire as a prime minister. Personally, I don't, th- I don't care. Um, I don't care at all about, um, you know, Starmer's um, pension benefits. I don't care at all. I think some people in the, uh, in know, the far right be, of the you gotta party... You've got to be careful with the H word. You know, it is genuinely... It, it's quite... 
it's quite the thing to throw around. Though. The H word being hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, but but I but I don't. I me personally, I don't think Starmer is being Hello, hypocritical. We'll be careful repeating the line is all. Yeah, I just, I just nothing to see here in that. No, I don't think okay. so. Okay, um, Liz Truss. <laughs> like I say, there's, if people connected me to a heart monitor, and actually this is a true story, uh, when I was at the Yorkshire Evening Post and Leeds were being managed by George Graham, they went, they scored, I think, 27 goals in a whole season. And I said to the editor at the time, I think a guy called Chris Byer, so I've got this great idea for a story. I said, what is it? I said, the football that they're serving up at Ellen Road is really boring. I said, I think we need to connect a fan to a heart monitor and get their heart monitor ratings during the course of the match. No word of a lie. We got this work experience lad and he had a chicken pie at half time his heart rating was as high eating his chicken pie than at any point during a football match the reason I mention that for is if you connected me to a heart monitor and were to check my readings they go up when I mention the name Liz Trust right her disastrous premiership lasted 49 days I saw a story this week that she's going to become a public speaker I mean who on their right mind would pay to listen to Liz Trust um, she's set to give peerages to various donors I think four which isn't many in her resignation honours Anything to see here? I want to scrap the whole system. I, d I do think there is something to see here. I think we should, the public should be raging about this. I think it's terrible that people like Liz Trust get to have uh, the 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 opportunity to dish out honours to people like Matthew Elliott from that whole Tufton Street think tank gaggle gaggle of people. Now, horrible, terrible. I think she wants to, um, you know, create four peerages, three of whom, I think, and uh, Liz Trust, if you want to come on the uh, Northern no, Spring podcast, <laughs> I think three of them are connected to Tufton Street. Um, now, Rob Parsons of Northern Agenda, a fellow journalist, did a really interesting comparison this week about the dispersal of asylum seekers in the North compared to the South. I think Rob Parsons, what he does really well is he picks subjects that aren't quote unquote sexy, that a lot of the press won't touch, but they have real value. So one of the standout stats for me was that the North East is 10 times the rate of asylum seekers in dispersed accommodation than the southeast and the southwest. Now, we saw violent scenes outside a hotel in Nolja recently that houses asylum seekers. Anything to see here, Michael? Yeah, good work, Rob. It's really good. And I think it's about time that occasionally that we do throw a little bit of praise towards journalists who work for Reach PLC. Um, they have a tough time of it, but he's a real shining light. And I do like the Northern Agenda uh, email that they send out. I think there's some good, good nuggets of information in there. And I like the way that they're interrogating data. Just pick you up. You said you mentioned about the violent scenes outside a hotel in Nosley that houses asylum seekers. That's not the issue. I think they're a sideshow. I'd like to focus on the absolutely dreadful way that human beings are treated in this country and the language that's used to describe them. Um, now, of course, the, the Tories are talking about um, f disused ferries and military bases some, somewhere to basically dump human beings who they're not prepared to, to think about how we, how we look after them properly in this country. I think it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the immigration bill is going to be discussed in Parliament this week. I think that was Suella Braverman on a motorbike going past our offices right now as we record this podcast. We just mentioned uh, Rob Parsons, another journalist who we both got a lot of time for, um, Jen Williams, formerly of this parish or the Manchester Evening News, uh, now at the FT. She's done a really interesting story in Teesside, Teesside with two S's, uh, after a recent faux pas by me on Twitter. <laughs> now, what she's saying is that Middlesbrough's independent mayor, Andy Preston, has been accused of having a, quote, obvious 
conflict of interest due to his ownership of eight properties in an area of northern England that he's tasked with regenerating. I couldn't see anything on Mr. Preston's Twitter feed when I looked over the weekend about it, but in the FT article, he said the suggestion that he has a conflict of interest is, in his words, laughable. This is all to do, just a reminder, uh, this is all to do with the Mayoral Development Corporation, the MDC, spearheaded by a friend of the podcast, Tees Valley Mayor, Ben Blocker-Houchin. I think it's refreshing that a national publication like the FT is shining a light on northern stories. Uh, anything to see here, Michael? Yeah, good. But to be fair to the FT, they've always had a good, really good journalist on the ground in the north. Jen, of course, is just the latest to be doing a very, very good job stepping into the big shoes of Andy Bounds, who's now working in Brussels for the Financial Times. So yeah, well done to the FT. Well done to Jen for unearthing that story. I think there is something to see there. I think it's a it's a fair question to ask any politician about um, what assets they own. Because it, it colours the decisions that they make. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it, and presumably he, he'll, he will be declaring that on the register of uh, potential conflicts of interest. It's what the Nolan principles of public life are designed to to, to kind of govern. I think whenever people use the term laughable, it's not laughable. Um, I think the wording is really important. But, um, yeah, we'll watch that one with interest. Um, one final thing I want to talk about before we go on manoeuvres is about junior doctors. Now, they're going to stage a four-day workout, a, a four-day walkout in April in their fight to get a 35% pay rise in England. I 100% respect people's right to strike. I think junior doctors are the unsung heroes of the NHS. We went to the uh, we went to uh, an A and E um, recently in 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 Manchester the back end of last year. There were three doctors in there. They were all I think junior doctors. They were all in their twenties. They were all phenomenal, and they were all overworked. I I hundred percent get that, and they think they do they do deserve a pay rise. But a thirty five percent pay rise. What's your view on that? Well, I think what you what you're doing is what you did with the railway workers and the nurses when they were in dispute. You're painting the upper end of their negotiating position as absurd, deriding their right to strike with a huge daily mail butt at the end of all of that. And, you know, the cost of living is soaring. There have probably been a chipping away of their employment rights and their um, and their their financial package that uh, I think they're well within their rights to be laying that on the table and and, and, and demanding something different. I think this is where I'm going to have to um, take umbrance with you. you know, what you do is you come up with these cheap taglines like Daily Mail, the format Daily Mail journalist, et cetera, et cetera, as you use it as a stick to Wait, beat me with. Is, no, it, is no, it not true? It is true. It is true. Yeah. But is it not true? Is it not true that, that, that junior doctors have asked for 35% pay rise? That headline didn't come from the Daily Mail. That headline came from the BBC. The same headline that was used in the Independent as well. You know, the point I'm making is that, you know, if you disagree with me, you'll come up with a, a, a dig. Um, you know, it's a 35% pay rise. Even, I mean, you look at what, um, you know, Labour yes, Shadow Secretary. Chris, no, no, Chris it's, a, it's a negotiating position. So it's fine for them to say, 35% in the same way when the nurses union came out and said we want 19%, they ended up getting 5% and a one-off payment. You know, now it is a negotiating tactic. It is 100%. Yep. But do you think it's right given the background and given the cost of living crisis and inflection? No, no, we're not. We're not disputing the fact they're on strike. You know, d- you know, they are entitled to strike. Do I agree with it? Me personally? No, I don't because I think ultimately the people who suffer uh, are the patients. However, I understand and respect their right to strike. What I find really odd is how a negotiation tactic can start with 35%. Why not? 
what, what's, 35%. Do you, do you know the full details of the, of the doctor's well, tell position? Us, you know, by all means, let's have a conversation and I won't come out with any sly digs. 35% will tell us what the full negotiations no, are. You, no, you're the one who's putting it on the table and saying that it's ridiculous. No. I'm saying what's the evidence and what lies behind it well, and well, that well, you've not been able to come up with anything else other than repeating that line. They, but, but that's the figure that's been quoted, 35%. I don't, see, I don't see why it's a problem, and I don't see why it's the sole uh, issue within the doctor's dispute that you're pivoting this on. I, I think the issue is that, that um, you know, is that in terms of the junior doctors, um, this is going to have a devastating impact on patients, 100%. Um, and I respect their right to strike, and I respect their right to demand a pay rise. What I'm saying is, is it realistic? Because it's not to talk about a 35% pay rise. It's not. Um, and this is where sometimes the argument gets lost because people don't talk about working practices. They only talk about 35%. Next, uh, next podcast, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about what the junior doctors are talking about because that's something that isn't being spoken about and I think it needs to be. Yes, it definitely does. And let's go on to our section on manoeuvres. Who do you think is on manoeuvres other than just junior doctors and daily mail journalists? <laughs> okay. Um, well, you for a start. Um, no, as always, you will say to me, oh, Chris, that doesn't fit into the criteria of what our manoeuvres is. But touchy I will go much. with it. Touchy. I will touchy. go with it. I will go with it. Last week, we saw the vote for Rishi Sunak's Brexit deal, known as the draft Windsor framework. Now, this was fascinating because people always talk about Tory rebellions. It was passed by a whopping 515 votes to 29, with 22 Tories rebelling. Now, what I did, I played this little game of myself, as you do. Yeah, I play a couple of games of myself. One is, what would you do if you won the lottery? Okay. The other one is, so incidentally, I was looking on Facebook and the opportunity to win a four and a half million pound Cornwall Cornwall house, um, you know, and all the money goes to Mary Curie at the weekend, popped up on my Facebook. I bought a £10 ticket. I've not won, but if I do, I'd like to invite you down there, Michael, just to show that there's no hard feelings. Um, I, I played this game of thinking, who would be the 22 MPs who would rebel against this, right? Okay. And I came up with a list of all the people who are trying to stay relevant. You call them the far right. I call them the irrelevant right. I don't. I call them the thick right. You call them the thick right. Okay. I call them the irrelevant right. The people who can only make any noise by being rebellious, okay? Uh, these are the lemmings who will do anything that uh, Boris Johnson does. Okay, who's in there? Jake Berry, check. Simon Seven Weeks Clark. I can't understand Simon Seven Weeks Clark. He's an intelligent guy, but he's got to rebel on everything. Jonathan Gullis, who just goes lower and lower in my estimation. There must be a point when you can't go any lower. Jonathan Gullis is that person. Jacob Rees-Mogg, if he's not spouting off on GB News, they all rebelled against it. That's what they do. They rebel against everything. Priti Patel, Liz Trust, Boris Johnson. Yeah, but there was a people like, I mean, I mean, Liz Trust, there you go. I mean, Liz Trust voted against it. Boris Johnson voted against it because it it wasn't there. It wasn't their policy. It wasn't their idea. You had likes the likes of Bill Cash. He was always going to vote against it. But these people, in my view, are on manoeuvres. Do you agree? Uh, to a point, I think the Tory right as a whole is on the move, and I think they're behaving quite strangely. Funders like Peter Cruddus, who Boris Johnson put into the House of Lords, he's a real Boris Johnson fanboy. He's one of those very rich people who sort of pays for Boris Johnson's holidays and wallpaper and things like that. He's been lunching with the very, very dangerous, dark, looming presence, the bad boy of Brexit himself, Aaron Banks. And they're both involved in grassroots Tory organisations, Blue Wave and something called CDO, which I think is the Conservative Democratic Organisation, which is all designed to mobilise the Tory grassroots and get people who are involved in things like Vote Leave and the Brexit Party involved as Tory party activists and to make the Tory party that little bit more UKIP-ish. 
And all these selections that are coming up as a result of boundary changes or retirements, that they're looking to influence them just to make the Tory parliamentary party make it a little bit more right-wing, so there's a little bit more than 22 of them prepared to rebel and support someone like Boris Johnson or Rhys Mogg becoming leader one day. But, but genuine question, though, Michael, is that do you think the fact that only 22 Conservative MPs voted against this policy and you had the obvious candidates like Liz Truss and Boris Johnson who clearly got a vested interest, do you not think that's a victory for Rishi Sunak? It's a victory for Rishi Sunak, yeah. 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 And, and and a really good whips operation that has made those Tory waverers. You know, bear in mind, you know, there were the, the one thing I do want to mention that, that is really interesting on all of this as well. You, you was, we were talking earlier about Keir Starmer and, and, and the kind of image that he wants to project. That is he a wrecker or a, a knocker and all the rest of it? The, the, the Northern Ireland bill got through the, the Brexit deal, 515 votes to 29. Big chunk of Labour votes in there as well. The yeah. Labour Party being sensible in the national interest in supporting something like this. They deserve a lot of credit for that because I think it was a real, real shame that Theresa May tried to negotiate a sensible Brexit that potentially a lot of people who didn't ever want Brexit could have backed. You know, almost soft membership of on um, EEA terms. And the Labour Party saw a moment to just knock the Tories and kind of effectively aligned with the hard Brexiteer right. And that's why we ended up getting a hard Brexit because they didn't play in the national interest. They played in the party interest. And I think that's quite important about what's going on at the moment. And it's seen as a return to sensible politics. I think I, I give, um, give Keir Starmer a lot of credit for that because there have been a number of issues where he's not been willing to pay party politics. And, um, you know, that was a good example of it. So have we got anyone else on manoeuvres? Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the number of high-profile celebrities who are taking to Twitter to give an opinion. I think it's quite actually. I think it's quite. Um, I think it's quite good. And and they're people who invariably are you know more mature. You know, people who who have got a few uh, a few years under the belt, got some grey hair like me and you as well. We've spoken before about Carol Vorderman. She hasn't got any grey hair. Um, Gary Lineker, who has, um, they've they've taken to Twitter to to call things out which they disagree with. Dragons Den star Deborah Meaden, she's getting involved. She's passionate about the environment. She's got her own podcast about uh, the way business regard uh, you know going green. She tweeted a lot last week about that. She tweeted about Nadine Doris's rant about Boris Johnson um, after his less than spectacular performance in front of the Privileges Committee. Now, clearly, you know, uh, um, she's not, um, you know, she's not, uh, it's not attracted the same amount of faux outrage as Gary Lineker's tweet did. It's not quite the same language that Gary Lineker used as well. But I just think it's fascinating how many politicians are using their, sorry, so how many celebrities, celebrities are using their position now to give an opinion on politics what do you think? Yeah, here's another one for you um, who said, what does the BBC stand for? Bring back Corbyn, bring back communism, <clears throat> and yet we have to pay for it whether we like it or not. Let's scrap it. Let's watch GB News all day long. There you have Chris, one of your favourites there. That's Jim Davidson, former BB BBC presenter. You're a big fan of it. You've got his box set. Yeah, I'm just keeping a record of the cheap insults from Michael Taylor's day. Michael, this is Lent at the moment. So yeah. so the things you've given up, chocolate, sweets, and being nasty to Chris Maguire. I know you've not eaten any sweets. Yeah. I know you've not eaten any chocolate, but that's about the fourth cheap dig in this podcast of Northern Spin. So we're going to go for a quick break, at which time me and Michael are going to, uh, uh, I'm going to bring Michael to his senses. Cheers. 
final part of Northern Spin. This is the bit that we call the fun bit. But before we do that, a big shout out to our latest sponsor, Red Flag Alert and Growth Flag, who are sponsoring the podcast alongside Red Flag Alert. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Growth Flag is the online tool designed with policymakers, commissioners, business decision makers and analysts in mind. It pulls live data from the comprehensive from a comprehensive data set and quickly shows where growth potential exists in individual businesses across the UK. And the reason we mention them in the same breath as Red Flag Alert is Red Flag Alert are very much part and parcel of that as well. Fantastic. So, um, well, what have you been up yeah, to this what week, have Michael? I been up to? Yeah, what have you been up to this week? Well, last week I hosted a superb event at Alliance Manchester Business School. Who said Talk. it was superb? Who said it was superb? Uh, Alliance Manchester Business okay. School. Yeah, okay. People who came along to it. People okay. who responded on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, I think it was as well. Okay. I, I chaired it. Um, I'm not commenting at all about my performance. Okay. Um, but I am talking about the people who are on the panel. Uh, Lisa from Booking.com, Joe from Deloitte, and Courtney from Alliance Manchester Business School. Three fantastic women talking about issues in leadership in a volatile and uncertain world. No, brilliant. Okay. And no, you, you know, you can just tell when you've done an event yeah. that the audience are engaged, that when you ask for questions at the end, it's not that awkward silence where you basically one of your mates rescues you by putting the hand up. Literally, hands went up to join in the debate. No, I, I social media was really positive around it and I got some nice messages afterwards. So is that think, enough? Is I that think, enough evidence? Yeah, absolutely. It's when people say it was a superb event, if you're saying it's a superb event, then I think we have to question that. What I would say though is that I think where we are similar is we do host lots of events, but we're probably our own biggest critics. Um so I always Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was if it wasn't. No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh well I hosted an event which was absolutely fantastic, described as well. Says who? <laughs> who said? Who said no, it was? No, I hosted an event last week called How to Become a game-changing leader. It was organized by a GC Business Growth Hub in partnership with UA92. I heard from some inspiring leaders. A guy called Azim Amir was the first speaker on. He was uh, he's in his 20s. He was born almost completely blind, completely blind in one eye and got very little vision in his other eye. When he was growing up, his parents and, and he said, look, we're not going to let your blindness define you. And, and he himself never, ever felt sorry for himself. He's a professional footballer. He plays for a, a, a blind football team. They play five aside. They have like a rattle or a bell in a ball um he runs his own business called learn with ess and you could just when he was talking everybody in the room about 70 people in the room just waited on every word that he said he was fantastic it was my first visit to ua 92 uh, now the university was founded by gary novel and his fellow manchester United class of 1992 i think it's about three or four years old now it's right next door to emirates old trafford cricket ground and it's quite a fascinating story behind it as well because um 25 of its students come from a disadvantaged background that's based on postcodes compared to the national average of uh, 17 uh, sorry 13 one of the speakers was a guy called abs um you know that's what he's known as abs and uh abs muhammad uh and he has got uh he's got you talk about neurodiversity he, he, he's got a tick he's got autism uh, he's got adhd as well and what he said is at school he was very much on the periphery and then he went to ua 92 he didn't want to go in he's in his early 20s didn't want to go in on the first day he wanted to go home but slowly but surely they encouraged him in now he's been here three years he's now an ambassador for ua 92 and it was just it's the 
human stories that make events. And uh, I was so impressed with what I saw uh, at UA92. And, and like I say, I give Gary Neville in the class of 92 huge credit because universities isn't something that makes money straight away. It's something that you have to build and grow. Um, now, any film, TV or cultural offerings this week, Michael? Well, I can only report on something. I'm, I'm afraid you can't go to it because it's finished. But I went to home in Manchester to see quite the most incredible version I've ever seen of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, which I think I must have seen before previous performances. It's a very difficult and complex play, riddled with some horrendous anti-Semitism. But my old university friend, Tracy Ann Oberman, has reclaimed it and reset it in the 1930s in the East End of London, with a lot of the characters, instead of being Venetian merchants, are actually um, upper class English people who are aligned to Mosley's British Union of Fascists. And it really reminds us that every generation faces these um, these these attempts to divide us and to ferment hate, and that this is absolutely no different these present times as well. Um, the program along, alongside the performance included a history of the Jewish people of this island and how they've been treated uh, over the years. Some of the speeches within it and some of the, the performances were absolutely spine-tingling. In particular, I thought Tracy was fantastic. And at the end of it, when she did this rallying call, I tell you what, we, Rachel and I both burst into tears as we were sat there on the front row. It was that powerful. Uh, Book-wise, uh, I bought Stanley Tucci's book, Taste, My Life in Food, which I'm very much looking forward to delving into. And I know that you've been watching Downton Abbey. How's that been going? Very good, actually. But before I tell you how good Downton Abbey is, um, how many people were at that performance at home? Because well, it was I, sold out. Yeah, yeah. because all three, all three tiers were sold out. That's what I find really encouraging, you know, because <clears throat> you're very open-minded, you know, and people talk about live theatre and live culture. And there's that big story last year in terms of, you know, funding in London for the arts and coming up to the north as well. And we spoke last week about the Coliseum in Oldham as well. Uh, I think what home do is fantastic. I'm so glad that that performance was watched by so many people. Yeah, Downton Abbey... I mean, we are, my wife and I, the figure of ridicule from our daughters at the moment because they just say we're really old because we like Downton Abbey. It's just getting better and better. I'm on series two at the moment. Um, I watched a really interesting film. As you know, me and Mrs. M like to go to the cinema and we watched a film called Alleluia, which you've spotted is going to be filmed, is going to be shown at Marple yep. fairly soon, based on <coughs> Alan Bennett's play of the same name. It's interesting because uh, when you see all the billboard advertising, it says, uh, you know, it's got um, Dame Judi Dench in it as well. She's actually got quite a minor role. Um, um, Jennifer Saunders is one of the standouts. Um, Bailey Gill as well. Derek Jacobi, who just seems to have been around for years and years and years. The standout performance for me was from a guy called David Bradley. Now, a lot of listeners won't be familiar with that name. Um, if you watch Ricky Gervais's uh, um, program, Afterlife, he plays Ricky Gervais's dad as well. Yeah. The film's yeah. set in a small Yorkshire hospital. Uh, it faces closure, prompts a community campaign to keep it open, but it makes a lot of political points about the NHS in, uh, in, in, in the process. As we um, were driving home, me and uh, Mrs. M and our eldest daughter, we always give these films a rating out of 10. I gave it a nine and my wife and uh, daughter gave it a five because of a twist that they didn't like. Uh, well, I watched a film on Netflix over the weekend that I gave five and a half out of 10 to. It was called The Weekend Away and it was set in Split in Croatia, although the book that it's based on was apparently set in Lisbon. But there you go. Right. Okay. 
But yeah, nothing wrong with that, is there? You can't give out half marks though. You either give it a five or a six. You can't sit on the fence. I've told you about this, Michael. All right, I'll give it six then. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that film Hallelujah though, it is absolutely definitely what I would call peak regent, yeah. which is our local cinema. It's one screen, it has an interval with ice creams. You can basically go there and enjoy a, a night out for a tenner. It's really, really good. Um, but they only have one thing on at any one time, and it's very much aimed at that demographic. It's Tick, Judy Dench, Derek Jacoby. Yeah, it was, and Alan Bennett play. It's just brilliant. Watch Love it. it. Watch it. Watch I'm it. Go. Tell me what you think. Yeah, and the popcorn will be better than you get at a multiplex. Yeah, I can't <clears> afford <throat> it at a multiplex. Anyway, that's all for episode seven of season three of Northern Spin. We're also on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on our YouTube channel. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast. Our sponsors, Oscar Technology, Lily Shippen, and Growth Flag in conjunction with Red Flag Alert. Special mention as well to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name, as ever, is Michael Taylor. And my name is Happy Clappy Chris McGuire. <laughs>